obviously in the Luke travel narrative. And last time we finished the three lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. So this week, as we look at our chiasm up there, we are in the nature of the kingdom starting in 1310, and we will finish up with the nature of the kingdom in 1411. And Jerusalem eschatology in the middle. And that's the end of our chiasm, and we will have studied all of it at that point. To remind you that we have been skipping around in chiasm order, but there's also the order in which Luke wrote it, and both of those orders mean something. So in the order that Luke wrote it, we have had the parable of the fig tree, and this has to do with the Pharisaic leadership in Israel. Fig tree obviously is a symbol of Israel, and the idea that the fig tree is not producing any fruit indicates that God, via Yeshua, is not pleased with Israel because they're not being fruitful. And of course, then you have the gardener come up and say, well, let me pack some manure around their feet and maybe they'll produce next year. As I have said many times, these parables are told in the context of rural villages. So the idea of packing manure around the Pharisees' feet would have been kind of snicker, snicker, snicker. Uh, Everybody would have A, gotten the metaphor, and would B, have liked it. So after this, we move to a different location. Verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Yeshua saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. One of the things that seems to be a characteristic of that place in that time is there was no shortage of people who are in need of healing. It does lots of healings. It casts out lots of demons. I have not seen, but I have heard from missionaries that in rural places like Africa and India, people will get these unclean spirits and this kind of thing will happen to them. And they'll be bent over like this for years. And at least in my humble opinion, we're not talking about an illness such as polio or rickets or something like that. What we're talking about here is a spiritual condition. She's been sideswiped by a demon. And one of the things that he does in a number of instances in the Gospels is people will bring children to him who are possessed of demons and cause epilepsy and all that kind of stuff. And he will cure them by casting out the demon. Here, when he says, woman, you are freed from your disability, he doesn't say you're healed. He says you're freed. And that's fairly thin to make any kind of theology on, but it appears to me like she is in bondage 
not sick or crippled. So anyway, she was made straight immediately. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Yeshua had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Several things about this. The Pharisee is almost right. If Yeshua was a physician, and that was his trade, he had some place where he hung out a shingle and said, I'm Yeshua, and I dispense pills and all that kind of stuff. For him then to be working on a Sabbath would, in fact, be out of order. But he's not a working physician in the worldly sense of things. He is the king, and he's a prophet, and he is the Messiah. I don't want to put too much emphasis on you are freed from your iniquity. It doesn't say she was healed. Immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So I get the impression that he's freeing her from bondage, and he'll say virtually the same thing in just a minute. So I can see the ruler of the synagogue's point. Of course, Yeshua is going to sideswipe him pretty heavily here. Let's read it. Verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. So he's not pleased with them. That's your first clue that he's not pleased. You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Cows will not skip the Sabbath to be milked. A stable hand has got to work that day to turn the animals out and take them to where they can get water. So in the agricultural sense or a ranching sense, that's work. And in the same manner, if you run a dairy, your cows don't wait 24 hours because it's the Sabbath. They have to be milked for their own health and good. And so what he's saying here is, yeah, you shouldn't be working on the Sabbath, but there are times when it's necessary. And you all understand those times. The classic one when somebody in the church wants to go to work on the Sabbath is, I got to help somebody pull an ox out of the ditch. That's sort of the standard thing, which by the way, most of the time I don't buy, simply because an ox in the ditch is an accident. And it doesn't sound like these instances are mostly accidents. So, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So, this is not a illness. This is a demonic infirmity. And so what he's saying is she's been bound for 18 years. Loosing her from her bond is no different than you taking your ox or your donkey out and watering it or milking your cow or any of those things that have to be done. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
consider the audience. It's fairly clear in these rural farming communities what their attitude is toward the Pharisees. It's sort of like you're out on a farm and some government bureaucrat comes and says, oh, you got to change the way you're tying up that horse because it doesn't meet our specifications. I've been tying up that horse that way for 20 years. It hasn't hurt anybody. I know, but the government regulations say you can't do that. You've got to do it this way now. You can imagine the attitude of a rancher toward such a bureaucrat that shows up. The way I'm reading these parables and so forth, I get the impression that the people in the rural villages sort of look upon the Pharisees in much the same spirit. These are nitpicky people who don't really help much of anything. And in fact, Yeshua himself says that in another place. He says, you guys have got the keys, but you don't unlock it and let anybody in. And furthermore, you don't go in yourselves. You know, this is the essence of a pettifogging bureaucrat, which I get the impression these folks are. So this is by way of a setup to the idea of what's the kingdom like. So we're now down to verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Understand that in this situation, he is not talking about heaven. And he is not talking about, for example, the millennial kingdom or the new heaven and the new earth. What he's talking about is right now, the kingdom of God. Because remember, one of the things that he does as he travels is he says, repent, the kingdom of God is here. So what we're talking about is the here and now, not the sweet by and by. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. We've talked about this before, that birds in the parables represent evil. The poster child for that is the parable of the sower, where you have the four kinds of soil, and the seed that's sown on the road where they can't penetrate, the birds come and steal it away. So what the birds are doing is stealing away the word of God. Birds are used several ways in scripture. When we talk about a specific named bird, like an eagle or a dove, that has a different meaning than when we're just talking about the birds. Because one of the things that you'll find, especially in the prophets, he says, I'm going to litter the ground with your bodies and the birds are going to come and eat them. In the Torah, where Joseph is interpreting the dream of the baker, and the baker has got the basket of bread on his head and birds come and eat the bread. So undifferentiated birds, you know, just birds in general as opposed to this is a dove, that's an eagle, so forth are not good. 
So the idea that you have a mustard seed which grows into a bird apartment is not good. I've said in the past that mustard doesn't grow big, and I was corrected by Mike, and, and I accept the correction. They do grow big enough in part of that part of the world. And he's used mustard seed as a metaphor in the past. If you have faith as a mustard seed, which is a very tiny amount of faith, then great things can happen with your great faith. So I take this in concert with the parable of the sower. The mustard seed is the word of God. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in his garden, the Garden of Eden, I will suggest, and it grew and became a tree, which became a bird apartment. So the fact that it has become a bird apartment is the problem here, and that's why I think we're talking about the kingdom as it is before the king returns. God planted a garden. God put people in the garden. We had birds come and steal away. In other words, Satan, came, in that case a snake, but came and stole away the word, and we wound up where we are. So the idea that the kingdom of God has got places where birds lodge, I think is perfectly consistent. And in fact, when you go to Revelation, you find in the church in Thyatira, and the church at Pergamum, what you have is sin and people who are pushing sin integral to the church. They're in the church and they're pushing their thing. So that's why I take this as not being new heaven and new earth territory. I take it as being now because you do in fact have sin all over the place. And then let's go on to the next parable. And he said again, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Several things about this. Everywhere else in Scripture, leaven represents sin. You've got to get the leaven out on Passover, and you only bring unleavened bread except during Shavuot. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees on and on and on. So leaven is not good. In the same way, I am saying that the mustard bush, which has become a bird apartment, is also not good. And then three measures of flour, that takes you back to Genesis. When Abraham does lunch with God and the two angels, remember he's sitting there feeling sorry for himself after having been circumcised, and these three men walk up, two of whom turn out to be angels and one of them turns out to be Jehovah. What he does is he tells Sarah, quick, go prepare three measures of fine flour and make cakes. All throughout that part of the world, the three measures is always regarded as hospitality. All of the Abrahamic faiths regarded as such, except perhaps Christians who don't know any better, but Muslims certainly do. And without putting too fine a point on it, who was the one who started eating of the forbidden fruit? The woman. So you have the woman putting leaven in 
the hospitality offering until it all becomes leavened. Now, full stop. I have heard preachers preach on this in a way that I don't believe is correct, but I will give it to you because you may have heard it elsewhere and you may like it, in which case, God bless you, be happy in your error. Of course, leaven is a living thing, and they have taught that the gospel is like leaven, which is put into the meal and it slowly spreads until the whole earth is leavened, and that it represents then the spread of the gospel in the world, and so they see leaven as a good thing in that context. I don't see it that way, but there are lots and lots of preachers who do. So you will very often hear it taught as, this is a good thing. The kingdom of God is like leaven. You put just a little bit in, and you step back, and after a while you come back, and it's just spread everywhere. And good preachers, preachers that I enjoy. I just don't think they're right on this one. The comment was, if birds and leaven represent sin... Why isn't it powers and principalities as opposed to actual people? Um, First off, the vignette that we just did where a woman was freed certainly would support that point of view. We just had a woman who's been bound by the devil for 18 years who's been free. And certainly the whole ball got rolling when Satan tempted the woman. So absolutely... Supernatural powers are, in fact, involved. And, in fact, if you wanted to go to Revelation, the other thing that happens at the end of the millennial reign, you remember, is Satan is freed, and he goes rumbling around the world again and tempts all the nations and convinces them to rise up against Israel and against the Messiah, and we have the Battle of Armageddon. So... I don't have any problem with Satan being heavily in this mix. Having said that, I really sort of feel, though, he's dealing with the Pharisees, the religious establishment, because everything that he's been doing up until now is with respect to the religious establishment. And in fact, the parable of the banquet and all that kind of stuff are, again, people. I would not have any problem with birds representing Satan. I would not have any problem with leaven representing sin. But again, I also see birds as corrupted human beings in this metaphor. So we did the mustard seed and the leaven. So now we go to 14 to do the other side. So this is the nature of the kingdom, if you will. And so now we swing down to chapter 14. And one Sabbath, notice we're on the Sabbath again. Most of Yeshua's running gun battles with the Pharisees happen on a Sabbath because he's making a point. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Yeshua responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Notice the matching of our chiasm. 
The first part of the chiasm, we had a woman in a synagogue on the Sabbath who was bent over. He didn't ask anybody, he just delivered her. Boom. And they said, oh, this isn't lawful. So now we have this guy who has dropsy. You all know what dropsy is? Dropsy is an accumulation of too much fluid in an extremity. You look like Popeye for anybody that remembers the Popeye cartoons. In fact, one of the things that happens in Africa with a tsetse fly is being bitten by a tsetse fly will cause that to happen. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. (laughs) Now, again, in the stream of the narrative, they yelled at him for healing on the Sabbath. Now he's asking permission, but before he just did it and they yelled at him. And then he turned around and called them a bunch of hypocrites and told a couple of parables. They're learning. So he says, all right, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Silence. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is not quite the same metaphor. Because remember in the first one where you're taking your animals out to drink, somebody's got to work. In other words, a field hand or a stable hand has got to come in, untie them, lead them off, and get them a drink of water, and bring them back and tie them up. So that's his day job. That's what he does. So he has to do his job on the Sabbath. Here we have an accident. Kid's out playing and falls in a well. Ox is out wandering around and trips and stumbles into a ditch. This is not like watering on the Sabbath day. Different situation. And they're learning. They're keeping their mouths shut. So he hasn't actually taken a stripe off of them. So now on to verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. Now notice back in verse 14, 1. He going to dine at the house of a ruler. So he's not the only invited guest. There's a bunch of invited guests. So all of those guests chose places of honor as they were coming in to sit down. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. All right, now, wedding feast. This is in the sweet by and by, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And what he's saying there is, all right, should any of you slugs, Pharisees, get invited to my wedding feast, do not assume, because you were religious elites on earth, that you are, in fact, going to be elites when you get to my wedding feast. Because there are going to be people at my wedding feast that you look on with contempt that I am going to look on as them being more honorable than you are. Go back to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The idea of the Pharisee is, "Ah, I'm at the feast, made it, and 
boy, am I going to be honored because I was really a hot rock for God back on earth. And what he's saying is there are going to be people that you don't suspect that are going to be higher than you in the seating chart. So when you come in, assume that you're going to be low down. That way you don't get embarrassed. You might, in fact, get honored by being moved up, but you are in no danger of being shamed by being pushed down. Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the idea is, in those circumstances, if you've got the presence of mind and the humility to recognize, I'm not going to be at the head table. You may wind up at the head table, but it won't be because you decided. So now we're going to back up and go to the interior part of our chiasm, which starts in 1322. So we are now at the apex of the chiasm. 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Now here we go. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. There's your key. Remember in John 8, where he's duking it out with the Pharisees. And they're saying, we are Abraham's seed. We're not children of fornication. And what he's telling them is, you guys are depending on your physical lineage, and you are not depending upon being righteous. And so what he's saying here, depart from me, all you workers of evil. He's not talking about every random Jew. What he is talking about is those who are working evil, the ones that he has been duking it out with all this time. The ones who, if they managed to get to the feast, would run up to the front and sit down because, wow, I was such a real cool dude before the resurrection. Those are the ones he's talking to, workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the same parable as where do you sit at the banquet. Furthermore, what he's saying is there are going to be people coming into the kingdom that you don't know. And of course, what he's referring to there is after the resurrection when the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. So it was always going to go out to the Gentiles. The prophets predict it. I mean, it's no surprise. 
I sort of use John 8 as my bellwether for this because when they're arguing with him, they basically say, we're the seed of Abraham. We're cool. And he says, no, the fact that you're physically a seed of Abraham isn't going to cut it. In fact, you are workers of iniquity and you are not going to be brought in. You are a liar because your father, the devil, was a liar and you speak like he does. I mean, it's just strong, strong words. And so this is very much in that same vein. But as you say, Nicodemus figured it out and so did the apostles who were all Jews and so did 3,000 others on Pentecost who were all Jews. And I suspect Gamaliel may have made it too. Because remember Gamaliel, when they want to get rid of him, says, oh, cool it, back off. If this is from God, you're not going to be able to stop it. You don't want to be in the way. If it's not from God, then it'll collapse on its own. Don't you mess with it. So perhaps Gamaliel got there too. Verse 31. At that very same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. All right. Behold, go tell that fox. He recognizes that this is a trap. He recognizes that what they're trying to do is derail him. And it isn't clear whether they're using Herod as a boogeyman or whether Herod is in fact involved. I, I don't know the answer to that. And so when he says, tell that fox, as in, I ain't fooled. I don't know what I go on my way today and, and perform cures today and tomorrow and on the third day I finish my course. I don't know what that necessarily means. 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. Notice three days. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So again, obviously he's saying he's a prophet, which of course he is. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the lament over Jerusalem I understand, because Jerusalem at that point is a thoroughgoing brothel. The reason that God sends you a prophet is not because you're doing a good job. He sends you a prophet because he's telling you to straighten out. What I don't know here, since he's the Messiah, you remember one prophet that gets sent to a city and the city repents and all the calamity does not happen. That's Jonah. So when Jonah goes to Nineveh and prophesies destruction of Nineveh, that destruction is only going to happen if Nineveh does not repent. Nineveh does repent and gets another hundred years. So what I don't know, because it didn't happen, when he says here, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, what I don't know is, had they repented, would that have ushered in the messianic era and gathering, raising the dry bones, you know, 
all of those prophecies. It didn't happen, so we don't know. But I sort of speculate from the way he says it that I really, really didn't want to do this. I really would have rather gathered your children back to you like it says in the prophets. That's genealogy and that's speculation on my part. Of course, it didn't happen, so there's no way we can know. Et ta